0: Welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Rachel Gregory is a board-certified nutritionist, strength and conditioning coach, podcaster, and founder of Metflex Life. She is the author of the international best-selling book, 21-Day Ketogenic Diet Weight Loss Challenge. Rachel received her master's degree in nutrition and exercise physiology from James Madison University, and a bachelor's degree in sports medicine from the University of Miami. Rachel completed the first-ever human clinical trial looking at the effects of a ketogenic diet in non-elite CrossFit athletes, which is published in the International Journal of Sports and Exercise Medicine. Rachel is a former collegiate triathlete and athletic trainer, and has worked with a variety of individuals throughout her career that include Division I collegiate athletes, WNBA stars, and some of the top bodybuilders in the world. She has a passion for educating those interested in optimizing their physical and mental well-being while improving long-term health and fitness. You can find her on social media and on her website at www.metflexlife.com. Rachel Gregory, what an honor it is to welcome you to Balanced Body Radio.
1: It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely, I love your Q and A episodes that you do on your podcast, which I'm going to ask you about in a second. And one of the things I really like is is you don't edit anything out. If you have a little goof up, you just keep it in there, which I, I think is so authentic, and I really love. And um, for the person listening, like the intro music that plays is playing live as I'm doing this, so I'm committed mm-hmm. for like these first two minutes while the music plays. Like anything that happens, I can't go back and edit. It's all one track. So I goofed up on your intro. I apologize, <laughs> but I do love your style that that you do the same way with your podcast.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, you just gotta be real, right? Just go with the flow.
0: (laughs) Totally. I try to edit out all the ums that I say in an episode, which is like 40 billion every single episode. Oh my God.
1: (laughs) If I tried to do that, I I don't even think it's possible. (laughs) I'm trying to get better at it though. So hopefully Hopefully now everybody's going to be listening for my ums and ahs. Great. <laughs> i set myself up <laughs>
0: yeah, for the listener. If you are listening and trying to pick out our ums and ahs, just know that you do it too. And you're just lucky you don't get recorded and don't have to listen to yourself. Say it. It's pretty painful. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Oh, first question, really hard hitting question here. Did you come up with the name Netflix and chill?
1: I did actually. That's amazing. I came up with it. That's amazing. Yeah.
0: <laughs> what a great name for a podcast.
1: Yeah, it honestly just kind of came to me one day. I was trying to figure out what to name the podcast. Um, it, my podcast actually went live the week that the pandemic hit, um, so it was not planned that way or anything like that. No way. Um, but it kind of ended up being this weird. Like I had already recorded what uh, recorded episodes, obviously within the months before to kind of have this whole big launch that was happening, um, and the podcast literally was, uh, scheduled to go live the week that the, the pandemic <laughs> happened. So everybody was at home, you know, Netflix and chilling maybe. So it kind of, hopefully they were also listening to my podcast, but it, it seemed like, um, at the time, as you know, downloads came in and all that stuff. So yeah, it was just kind of funny that it worked out like that.
0: That's amazing, (laughs) Metflex and Chill, that's so cool. Um, You weren't like the rest of us. We all started in 2020, but we started way after, like we were bored for so long and so many days. So it's good you got the jump on us, I think that's great. (laughs) <laughs> I, I'm yeah. super excited to have you on. I want to have a really uh, nuanced and interesting conversation about diet and, um, you know, conditioning and fitness and everything that you're really into. It's funny. My dad does sports for channel four and he always joked that he wished he would have been a weatherman because he could have been wrong <laughs> about everything most of the time and still would have kept his job. And I thought that was true until I got into the world of nutrition. And, and now I just think like I'm wrong all the time about so much constantly learning, and constantly being wrong. It can be a little overwhelming.
1: <laughs> I mean, I think that in nutrition and training and fitness and anything, like if you're not wrong <laughs> once a day, <laughs> or if you're not questioning yourself once a day, then you're, you're probably not doing it right. <laughs> yep. Cause there's just so much, there. there's so much gray area when it comes to nutrition and training. Um, and it's really just because we are all our own individuals, right? So nothing is black and white. And, and I've learned that throughout the years. Um, and it's something that maybe I didn't think like when I was first getting into, I was like, Oh, this is the way, like, this is the only way to do it. This is the best way to do it. And as I, you know, built my business, started my, I have a coaching business. I work with a lot of clients, a lot of females specifically, and every single, like, every single week, every single month, I just continued to learn that it's, it, there's literally no one way for, yeah. for this stuff. So
0: totally. That was a good day. That first day we got our certificates and it's all been downhill from there. Totally. Um, <laughs> I love the quote. Um, I don't know if it's his or if he stole it from somebody, but Peter Atiyah referencing the further away you get from shore, the deeper the water gets. And that's exactly how I feel about mm. nutrition. It's just it's so much to learn and so many different wormholes to go into before we start to get into that. Mm. I would love to hear your story and how you got interested in some of this stuff.
1: Yeah, sure. So i I always uh, preface this with I tend to ramble on when I'm asked about my intros, so I will try to keep it short and sweet. Um, and feel free to interrupt me if you want. Um, but I I basically grew up in sports. Um, I my dad played football in college, so and I, he only had two girls, so I was kind of the. <laughs> the One who was really into the sports um growing up and you know played basketball and softball. And um in my my junior year of high school, I got injured during my AU season, my basketball season. I really wanted to go on to college and actually play college ball, um, but it didn't happen. I wasn't gonna play like D one or anything. It was it was probably gonna be like a D three school. Um, but I ended up getting injured, missed kind of my whole junior uh, I got injured my junior year season, missed my whole high school season, missed my AAU season. And so kind of it just wasn't working out. So I was like, all right, if I can't, you know, play sports, if I can't be an athlete uh, in college, then I want to do something that is related to athletic training, um, which is, you know, treating the athletes. Right. So that's what I did. I went to the University of Miami and got my undergrad degree in athletic training and sports medicine. Um, I actually picked up triathlons for the club team there. So I couldn't really put the athlete side of things away. Um, so I, did that as kind of like a, a side thing. Um, and as I got more into my, you know, my education, I realized that I was getting really, really into nutrition. Um, so I kind of junior year of college, I was like, I don't, know if I can just do the athletic training side of things. I don't know if I want to do that for the rest of my life. Um, So I decided to go on to grad school and get my graduate degree in nutrition and exercise physiology while working as a graduate assistant athletic trainer um, at James Madison University. And that's where um, that kind of propelled me into CrossFit as a a new sport, a new activity for myself. And then also came across the ketogenic diet. Um, it was getting popular and I had to do my, uh, my thesis study. It was a two-year program. We had to do a thesis study. So I ended up doing the first study looking at, uh, implementing a ketogenic diet in non-elite CrossFit athletes. Um, and that kind of opened a lot of, uh, doors for certain things. Um, especially as it was kind of up and coming when keto was getting more popular and that's what really propelled me into that world. Um, after grad school, I, um, I ended up working as a... This is, was kind of like a tangent. I worked as a nutrition scientist for a supplement company for a year and then realized that's not what I wanted to do. Um, and then basically picked up and moved across the country to San Diego and started my own coaching business um, around the ketogenic diet and utilizing that as a tool. And then as we just spoke about learned a lot, made a lot of mistakes, um, worked with a lot of people and tested a lot of things out on myself and kind of had years of experience working kind of in the field with these clients and kind of came to the conclusion that, again, there's no one way to do anything. But I think that there is a lot of uh, power in being metabolically flexible where you can use both fuel sources, fats and carbs, strategically at certain times, and you're like depending on where you're at. Um, and so that's what really got me into like the whole metabolic flexibility side of things. And then another quick tangent: I started getting more into bodybuilding, so it kind of came out of that CrossFit. Um, went through my own transformation. I uh, lost like 20 pounds. You know, was uh, training for or prepping for a photo shoot, just as like a challenge for myself. Learned a lot there, and. Yeah. So that brought me to now where I'm just like super, super interested in all things nutrition and training specifically for hypertrophy training. And I work with a lot of women in both uh, one-on-one and my group coaching program, the flex fam. So that's my life in, I don't even know how long that was, but hopefully I bit you. That was good. No,
0: you t- kept it about five minutes. It's great. No, okay, it, cool. it's, it's amazing that you covered so many different things. I mean, you think like, you know, basketball and then triathlon and then CrossFit and then bodybuilding. That's a very wide range of the spectrum. That's so interesting. You said that the keto was kind of getting more popular around 2014. That certainly wasn't my experience. I didn't come across mm-hmm. it until much later. Um, mm-hmm. But I do remember coming across your study. There wasn't many studies out there about, you know, ketosis at the time. And so we were grabbing on to anything we could find. I'm really curious to know what you were expecting to find and what you actually learned from that study.
1: Yeah. So yeah, the study was, what are we in 2022 20, now? That's right. <laughs> so yeah, the study was uh, from... The, the whole process was from 2014 to 2016. Yeah, because I graduated in 2016. Um, and so, basically, going into the study, I didn't really know what to expect. I had actually just started researching the keto-junk diet, and um, really, I kind of went to my advisor when we first started to to look at subjects to do our thesis study on. Um, and most of my classmates who were also graduate athlete, assistant athletic trainers, um, not all of them, but but most of them. Um, we're doing more like survey based studies and and things like that and i knew that i didn't want to do that for 2 years i knew that i wanted to challenge myself um and so i told my advisor like i want to do something that's kind of in the field you know a, a real time thing um and he basically said you're not going to have the time for that and i said watch me <laughs> um so we ended up preparing this whole study and it was a 2 year process um and he basically said okay if you're going to do this pick a an athletic population and then find a nutritional intervention to implement in this athletic population and see what you want to find or have a have a hypothesis. And so my athletic population was obviously the CrossFit athletes. I was just getting into CrossFit myself. Um, and I, I preface this with non-elite CrossFit athletes, right? So just your average Joe who goes to CrossFit a few times a week. Um, there's like mostly the people in the study were like female, um, We had a female to male ratio, more females than males, um, mostly moms and just dads really just in, uh, at the, I'm sorry.
0: No, no, no. Was there like a body composition, like average?
1: Um, so in terms of like average, like for the, like when starting off or like
0: body fat percentage, was it, was it like a wide range since it was like more normal population?
1: Yeah, it wasn't like a, it was, it was definitely not like, like bodybuilding, percentages or anything like that it was more so like your averages um, some are a little bit maybe considered in the overweight category Got more it. which just normal mostly normal weight cool. Got it. um so yeah not like obese but not you know shredded um so so yeah so I wanted went into the study wanted to just see if there was there could be any body composition changes within this period of time for those who are in the ketogenic diet group versus those who are in the control group, um, and also how that would affect their performance. And so I I won't go into like all the details of the study. It's all kind of in the, the paper, if you want to read it. Um, but basically it was a six week study. So we looked at pre and post measurements, body, uh, body fat scans, DEXA scans. Um, we looked at, uh, we, we did different, uh, measurements in terms of, um, performance measurements, things like that compared before and after. And basically just wanted to see if the ketogenic diet group could lose a significant amount of body fat compared to the control group, um, while still behaving to Still being able to maintain their performance, um, and that's pretty much what we found um, on average in this group. And uh, they actually were able to increase their performance to the same degree. Um, but when we're talking about performance-wise, again, I, I want to preface like this: these are not elite CrossFit athletes, right? And that's not even their goal with their performance. Their their goal was to you know get in, get a night, uh, get a good workout in, perform well, feel good, lose some body fat, right? Change your body composition a little bit um and so that's kind of what the the goal was of to to see if that could be possible if they could do that with with following a strict ketogenic protocol and we did see that um and the results were great but also realize with any scientific research we're looking at averages right and so you are not an average you are your own person so something that works for averages and this is for any type of scientific research it might not work for you it may not be the most ideal thing for you and even as i've come kind of full circle myself. And that was like, what, six can't do the math six years ago, five, six years ago. Um, for most of the clients I work with now, we can utilize the ketogenic diet. Like I said, to, help to promote more metabolic flexibility, but it's not something that I tend to keep people on for long-term or recommend for long-term unless there's like a specific medical reason to do that. So. Yeah.
0: Gotcha. That's very well explained in exactly the direction I wanted to take this conversation. Let's start with the pros. Every diet has some pros. It's got some cons. It could be you know expensive. It could be inexpensive. It could be difficult socially, whatever. Let's talk about the pros of the ketogenic diet. What is it that makes the ketogenic diet amazing?
1: great question. Um, so I think that there are definitely, like you said, there's pros and cons to everything. I think one of the biggest pros with keto is that for most people who are just kind of coming into it, right. They, um, they're looking to, you know, benefit from the the fat loss side of things, which is something that obviously lots of people have benefited from, Um, from an appetite suppression standpoint, that could be a really powerful tool. um, especially kind of getting away from some of the blood sugar dysregulation that can occur for people who are used to more of a higher carb approach, um, or even like a moderate to high carb approach. So some of that appetite regulation that comes from the blood sugar stabilization, as well as, um, you know, when you're producing ketones and utilizing ketones for fuel, there's research and anecdotal research as well. And you know, even I can say myself that when I'm utilizing ketones for fuel, um, and in a state of ketosis, I do have, you know, that uh, some appetite suppression to that. Um, I would say that it comes and goes for different people too. So it's not just like, Hey, you need to like go on a ketogenic diet to suppress your appetite. Like again, everybody's their own individual, not saying that's going to happen for everybody, but it has been shown and, and seen in the literature and also anecdotally. So I think that's one, uh, one big thing. Uh, another thing with any dietary protocol, I think that it does all come down to the adherence side of things. So, you know, if we're taking someone who is, you know, struggling with like sugar cravings, right. Which can also come back to the blood sugar side of things. And they just, they can't get away from that. Like they can't get away from, even if they have, um, you know, fruit, for example, it may trigger it might trigger them to have uh, more want more processed foods that are higher in, in sugar and carbs and things like that. Again, not saying that fruit is bad by any means. Um, no foods are good or bad; they don't have morality, right? They're they're food, um, but some people can struggle with you know, that those sugar cravings and they can be like something that really holds them back from achieving their goals because it it makes it hard for them to adhere to maybe their caloric intake for the day. And they end up, you know, having cravings and, um, giving into those cravings, things like that. So from that perspective, I've seen people benefit from kind of just, okay, if I can just get away from the, you know, the sugar, the carbs for a little while and kind of, you know, re, uh, not reprogram my body, but maybe reprogram my taste buds a little bit. Um, that tends to be something that's more practical and can help from, you know, a ketogenic approach. Cause we're taking out, um, some of those, you know, sugary foods and the, the sweet things, um, and the, the carb heavy things. So those are a few other kind of practical pros. Uh, there's, there's other ones too. Um, from a mental perspective, like I know that's one that I really found. And this is probably one of the reasons why I stuck with keto for, for as long as I did, um, is I really enjoyed those, that mental clarity, um, and, and kind of just waking up in the morning, not feeling like I have to eat, um, like right away. I used to struggle with that a lot. I used to wake up, um, and just, you know, be ravenous all the time. Um, so, and I used to have kind of like the hangry feeling and stuff like that. So for me, that was what really helped. And for a lot of the clients that I work with, um, who we have taken on a ketogenic approach for a period of time, they've noticed some of those benefits. Um, so yeah, those are just some of them. Um, but also there's, there's cons to everything. Right. So, um,
0: yeah, no, that's great. I love that explanation. I love the explanation on fruit as well. I I am with you. I don't think any food is good or bad. Fruit, fruit to me seems like something that's very benign for most people. I don't think it's going to cause many problems. I I think the way the way I try to explain it is just like my my strawberry plant right now is growing outside. There are strawberries on the plant. They're like my thumb tip they're very small they're teeny yeah. it's not the same that you would see at a store that you can dip into chocolate like you can't dip these into chocolate <laughs> and and you know i picked a few the other day and left them out of my counter and we keep our house pretty cold like 12 hours later they were already pretty like like, like aged they, they they were really oxidized at that point and it's just to say like no, I don't think fruit is bad, but we do have to consider some of those things that like, yeah, the, the mm-hmm. fruit that we've kind of bred over the years is vastly different than what actually naturally grows. And it's available all the time versus, you know, my strawberry plant's going to be done in a week.
1: Yeah. 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 And I think that definitely comes back to also, you know, more, more so looking at like the primal paleo approach of, you know, eating within the seasons and things like that. That's that's also important. So yeah, I agree with
0: that. Cool. I love how you use all these things as tools and everything has their place and there's nothing that's <laughs> like good or bad, which, which it makes this so, you know, challenging and nuanced. So, so once somebody is going, you know, the ketogenic route, they're starting to notice some of the benefits that you mentioned. And of course, many, many others, you, you know, you start to, you start to almost associate yourself with the diet. And, you know, I, t- I talked to Ben Azadi about this, where it's like, you, first of all, you're eating keto and then foods are keto. And then all of a sudden like you're keto, like I'm keto now, like I thought it was Casey, but I'm keto. Like, like what, what kinds of things have you noticed when people get a little bit too attached to something that's really amazing and got them really, really good results?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's one of the biggest things that I struggle with a lot, um, is like, you kind of identify with a diet, especially with keto. And, um, in my experience, like in my, when I was kind of going through it, I actually made a lot of, friends in the space, um, going to these low carb conferences and these keto conferences, especially as like, it kind of became popular. Um, and so that was a struggle for me kind of coming a a little bit away from that, but for a lot of the clients that I work with, and and again, these are things that I went through. Um, I think there's a, there's, it's just so psychological. There's like a, a huge psychological component to it. Um, and one of the biggest things I see is just like Carb phobia, right? Just being afraid of carbohydrates. And even like we were talking about, being afraid to eat a strawberry from a garden or a sweet potato from your garden, maybe, or from grocery or wherever you get it. Just literally being scared to eat whole food carbs that grow from nature, right? So I was in that boat a little bit um, at a certain point. And I was like, I remember just. I was like, if I look at a sweet potato, I'm going to gain weight. Like that's where my mind was at. Um, because I was like, okay, keto is the one way like this. I feel great with this, um, at the time. And I was like, I'm never going back to carbs. And so that was like a, a big psychological component, but my physical, uh, I guess transformation in the physical way that I felt was kind of getting muddied by that psychological side of things. And so that's where I kind of came to the point. And I kind of talked about this. I, I lost 20 pounds prep for a photo shoot. Um, that was, I did not do that keto. Um, I did it lower carb and I used keto throughout at different points, but it was not like a strict keto approach, not saying that you can't do that keto or anything like that. Um, but so in the beginning, when I first got into keto, I did lose some weight through keto. Right. And I was able to maintain that for a little while. Um, especially as I stayed there for like, I stayed there for a long time, but I was at a different place in my life. I was doing different things. Um, and so I was at that point where it's like, okay, I'm never going back to carbs. But then eventually I started like, I was writing my book and I was in a different kind of place. I was stressed out from other factors. And so, um, and I was kind of overdoing it with CrossFit for sure. And I ended up getting injured. And so I kind of gained some weight back and I was just not in a good place, but I was still like keto. (laughs) It was like, this is the only way. Um, so I kind of had to step out of my own, Mind really, and just let someone else take over, and so that's when I hired my first coach for myself, um, and that was uh, four years ago, four years, somewhere around there. Um, I hired my own coach, and I basically kind of put it in his hands, and I said, "Hey, I like I, I'm just psychologically, I need a break from thinking about my own diet and getting, you know, trying to change all these things, and I just need some outside perspective to come in and just be like, hey, let's try this, you know." do this and i'm going to hold you accountable to it and we'll see what happens and that was a game changer for me um just with personally and then also within my own ability to um coach others and be the best coach that i can i think that um i still have a coach to this day it's not the same coach but i've i've had a coach since then um for the last 4 years you know learning from different people and and you know that's a a, a huge piece of it that i think a lot of people miss out on is like asking for help and feeling okay, like feeling okay with, you know, putting it into someone else's hands for a little bit. And also realizing that like, just because you're putting it in someone else's hands to like, you know, set a plan for you, hold you accountable. Doesn't mean like they're going to do the work for you necessarily. So that's something else we have to think about. It's, it's not like, like you still have to do the work, right. Um, it still takes work, but I think that was a huge piece of it. That really, um, from a psychological standpoint is just thinking about if I, Like if I, if you're listening to this and you're legitimately scared to eat a fruit or a potato at some point, um, it's probably not okay. (laughs) Um, it's, yeah, it's probably a little bit too far off the deep end there. And we need to kind of reel back in and realize like, okay, what am I actually doing right now? And, and what is actually going to make me healthier versus, uh, you know, what's actually deteriorating my health from, from a psychological standpoint. Yeah. That's
0: very, very well explained I think there's two big misconceptions about the coaching. um, that that you really highlighted there. First of all, coaches need coaches. Like we all have to get coaching from someone. And just because we're helping you, the listener along with certain things, doesn't mean that we don't also need help with a lot of this stuff. And the second thing about coaching that I think is a huge misconception is good coaches will never tell you what to do. We're not going to say like, Oh yeah, get this out. You can't do this, eat this, 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 and you'll be fine. We might like brainstorm a few things with you. Oftentimes mm-hmm. I'm just listening. Well, while, while my clients are kind of talking things out and they're figuring things out on their own. They just needed like a soundboard. And so I wish people mm-hmm. would invest more in that type of coaching and invest a little bit less in like, you know, the cookie cutter programs or specialized exercise equipment and a little bit more in like learning that type of a skill, because I think it's so important.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I am in the middle right now of a, a launch for my, uh, my flex fam, which is my group coaching membership. And so that, um, that is open, it's open twice a year. And so we're just coming to the end of the, or the closing of, of this launch. And I had a question yesterday, someone sent a question about like, what's the nutrition plan? Like, is it individualized? Do I get like a meal plan? And with that, I, I basically responded. I said, I don't believe in, in the cookie cutter plans. Um, I'm going to give you all the tools that you need. I'm going to be there to teach you, you know, within the group coaching, it is, you know, me teaching, but also others supporting and and giving feedback and stuff like that. Um, and so that's something that I think a lot of people like they want the quick fix, right? We all want the quick fix, but that's not going to teach you how, maybe that teaches you, maybe that gets you results in, in within a three month period. Maybe you lose some body fat, right? You start to feel better. But if you're just following a specific plan, a cookie cutter plan, and you're not learning the things behind that plan, right? If you're not learning how to build the habits, if you're not learning why you're eating, what you're eating, what's working for you, especially if you're looking to maybe build some muscle or get quote unquote toned. um, I say quote unquote because getting toned is literally building muscle, um, especially for women. Uh, We have to, you know, realize that. Uh, But yeah, so there's no like, there's nothing wrong with following a meal plan for a period of time to like kind of get things consistent and figure out what foods work for you, things like that. But, you know, as I said, from the beginning, everybody is their own individual and there's going to be things that come up in your life. There's going to be things that, um, kind of, you need to start to, you know, go through, to be able to adapt to them, to be able to, you know, go through the struggles and figure out, you know, what's working for you, what's not working for you. How can you maintain this long-term because What does it matter if you like lose weight right over a four month period? But then, once you're finished with the diet, if you can't maintain it, which we know from the research, I think 80 to 90%, at least from the stats that I've recently seen, 80 to 90% of people who lose weight gain it back. That is because they have not built up the habits, built up the structure built up the systems to have in place to be able to maintain the results long-term. And so what's the point of doing it if you're not gonna be able to maintain it? That's right. Yeah,
0: that's right. There's no value there. Like if I were to take a magic wand and make everybody look or feel the way they want to look or feel, they wouldn't appreciate it anyway. They would still think they sucked and they didn't go through the process. And it's, that's, that's where all the value is. It's learning and growing and evolving over time. So I love how you explain Mm -hmm. that. This might be a good place to really explain what, what metabolic flexibility is and why that should be the end goal for most people.
1: Yeah, great question. So With metabolic flexibility, it's basically your body's ability to use the primary fuel sources efficiently and effectively. So when we're talking about primary fuel sources, we're talking about carbohydrates, um, in the form of glucose, right. Um, and, and fat in the form of fatty acids and ketones. Those are kind of our two primary fuel sources when we're talking about calories and, and fuel. Um, protein is there, but protein is not we don't really want to use protein as a fuel source. We want to use it as a recovery resource. Um, all of the processes in our bodies, there's a lot of processes in our bodies that require protein. So it's more of, I like to look at it as kind of that, the building blocks that the recovery, um, side of things, building muscle, right. Muscle protein synthesis, all that jazz. But in terms of energy, like using energy, uh, we want to use carbs and fats. And so, um, in terms of metabolic flexibility, I kind of look at it on a spectrum. Um, there's people who are, you know, very high carb, we call them, you know, sugar burners, or you use that term where you're, you're a sugar burner, which basically you're kind of running off, uh, sugar glucose all the time. Your body is not very efficient at tapping into its body fat to be used for, for fuel. So, you know, sometimes I, I like to reframe the way I say that though, because it can get a little bit, like people can take it literally, um, in the sense of like, oh, I, you know, if I'm a sugar burner, I'm never going to burn body fat. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that it's harder for you to tap in to using fat as fuel if you're so accustomed to burning sugar, burning carbohydrates as fuel. Um, versus someone who maybe, fought, maybe have gone into a state of ketosis before, which is you know not your average American, right? They, their body is more primed to use fat as fuel because their body can recognize that source. They can recognize the ketones, right? Most people, uh, most people in kind of the general, like if we're talking general, American diet, standard American diet, they have never, they haven't used ketones for fuel since they were a baby. Babies, right? yep. Yeah. So, um, so we've kind of gotten away from that kind of primal side of things, right? Just living in our modern world. And so, Going through a period of ketosis, really just kind of maybe going through some, not maybe you don't even have to follow a ketogenic diet. Maybe you just implement some fasting here and there, or maybe you go into a little bit of a lower carb diet um, and you just kind of try those things out that can basically prime your body to recognize Fat and ketones as a fuel source so that you can efficiently kind of go back and forth and use those things when it's warranted. So, you know, if you're sitting at your desk all day and you're just doing low, low activity, literally sitting at your desk, doing nothing, working on your computer, you should be using fat and ketones as your primary fuel source, right? If you are out, you know, sprinting or you're in the gym, lifting weights, like carbohydrates and glucose, that's going to be, that's probably going to be the primary fuel source that you want to use. Right. But if your body's not efficient at going back and forth between those or tapping into those, right. From both sides of the spectrum, then it's just harder to be efficient at that. It's, it's going to cause issues down the line, whether that's, there's so many different things that I can cause. Right. Um, so that's where the metabolic flexibility side comes into it because we have people who are sugar burners, like on way on that side of the spectrum. And then we have people who are actually way on the side of the spectrum of fat burners where they've gone keto, but they've stayed there for like a long time. And so their body has basically down regulated the uh, machinery to process carbohydrates efficiently, whether that's from just digestive enzymes or just not being used to them and things like that. So that's where the metabolic flexibility side of things comes in, because that's where you can kind of be in the middle, um, and still kind of tr- train your body to, to use these different fuel sources but do in a way that it recognizes them at different times when it's warranted. So that's kind of the gist of metabolic flexibility, just being able to efficiently switch back and forth between them at the specific times that they should be used.
0: Very well explained. Yeah. I love that. Um, I'm I'm kind of coming up with an analogy. Maybe this will be a little bit rough, so maybe you can help refine this. We have, let's say two engines that can operate in our body. One is our race car engine, which is terribly inefficient. It's not trying to be efficient. It puts out a lot of pollution, does a lot of damage. You shouldn't really throttle it all the time. It goes through fuel like crazy. So you have to, you know, bring it into the pit stops to, to fuel it up all the time. You also have a hybrid car. So this is much more efficient. It goes way further. You don't need to refuel it very often, doesn't put out a lot of pollution and you should be able to alternate between those two Engines using them depending on what's going on. If we're mm. netflixing, netflixing and chilling, and we're <laughs> watching Formula One on on, on Netflix or whatever, yeah. <laughs> we want to be burning fat, even though we're watching the race cars go super fast and burn the other fuel. The problem becomes when we change our environment, and now all we do is eat the kind of fuel that feeds the race car type engine. We stop being good at using the hybrid car type engine, and so now people are throttling the engine that shouldn't be throttled all the time. They're eating all the time. They're stimulating ins all the time, gaining tons of fat and not able to use that fuel source. So in my mind, a ketogenic diet is okay. Let's shut down at least temporarily the race car. Let's get the hybrid car to be really good. But if you just do that for so long, you won't be good at the race car stuff when you need to go on a race, which happens. Is that fair? How would you refine that?
1: Yeah. I mean, that, that definitely breaks it down. Um, I, I wouldn't, yeah, I would say that's, that's pretty accurate. Um, I think one thing I would say though, is that some people will, and I did this for a while too, like will f- kind of say like, oh, well, if I don't, you know, if I'm with carbohydrates, for example, and sugar, if it's causing all this kind of pollution, like you mentioned, or people will say inflammation, right. Um, then why would I ever want to, to go there? Right. But I think again, it comes back to what like the specific goal that you have. Um, it also comes back to the foods that you're eating too, because this is something that I think a lot of people get uh, a little confused is that when, when someone refers to processed foods or packaged foods or, you know, candy and things like that, um, people immediately think that that's all carbohydrates and sugar. And yeah, it is. There's a lot of sugar and carbohydrates in there too, but there is also fat in there too. So it's, those two things combined in the process and, 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 and that side of things is something that we also need to understand too, because again, when we're going back to the strawberries and the sweet potatoes and the whole foods, um, those are things that, you know, will have a different effect in your body. If you're having, you know, a sweet potato versus a, uh, a bowl of pasta or, you know, some bread, like wonder bread that they have different effects in your body based off of the nutrients you're absorbing based off the fiber, all of that. Um, so that's also things that when you think about just like kind of the, the quality of the food as well.
0: Yeah, that's really well explained too. So, so how would somebody know that, you know, low carb ketogenic diet is still working and you can keep going versus like, maybe you've done it a little bit too long and now we need to think about getting you off of it and transitioning onto something different.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So There's, I mean, it it does come down to really just kind of taking a step back and, and realizing like, okay, what I'm doing now, is it, is it working for me? Do I have specific goals that I'm working towards? And am I getting closer to that, those goals, whether that be body composition goals, performance goals, overall health goals. Um, so it's really just kind of figuring out like, am I, what, where am I at right now? And being really realistic with yourself or having someone come in from the outside and help you to uh take the blinders off and, and do a little bit of an audit of your your overall goals and, and things that you're looking to get you know closer to right. Um so that's the first thing is just realizing that and saying, hey, do I, am I at where I want to be at? Or could I, you know, could I be changing some things up to get to where I want to be? Um, and so I think with people who are are, are following a lower carb ketogenic diet, you know, if you've gotten to a place where maybe body composition changes are your main goal. Maybe you've gotten, um, you're like, I've been doing keto for a while. Initially I had some really like, good results. I was losing body fat, um, maybe even, you know, getting into the gym a little bit more feeling better. And then it kind of plateaued. You got stagnant, um, and you've just been there for a while and you're looking to continue to, to change your body composition, um, that might require bringing carbs back in, depending on what you're doing, depending on what your activity is like, uh, what your main goal is in terms of being in the gym, how, you know, what type of lifting you're doing, what type of exercise you're doing and all that. So that's one standpoint, um, performance standpoint, you know, are you trying to perform better in a sport or something like that. And you're, you're not seeing any performance benefits anymore following a low carb diet. Um, that's something to think about, um, from a general, like, at least for what I've seen with a lot of females from like a general hormonal and even just like anxiety standpoint, sometimes, you know, bringing carbs back in can actually benefit those things, um, just overall. And I think, Again, there's there's a few different things within that. There's there's lots of things to that actually. But the biggest thing is just being realistic with where you're at and kind of having that audit of what's going on, where you're at with your goals and um, you know, not being afraid to try something different
0: how do you help your clients psychologically with that? Because I, I just find that so challenging. It's probably worse in my world where we're doing, you know, carnivore coaching. So not only are we, you know, not really eating a ton of carbohydrates, but we're also, you know, educating people on lectins and phytates and, and oxalates. Mm -hmm. And so we'll say like spinach has a lot of oxalates and your body, you know, takes some time to, you know, detox them. And it's like, in some people that might be a huge problem. That doesn't mean everybody all the time can never have this all the time. It's you, you get locked into that and it's, it's really hard psychologically to talk people out of that. So I'm wondering how you approach that with your clients.
1: Yeah. So I think the biggest thing is just like you said, the education, like what you just said, the education side of it, talking them through it, um, coming up with you know a plan together and also realizing that if you try to go change a ton of variables at one time it's gonna be really hard to see what's working and what's not um, so that's one thing that I do like with my coaching clients whether it's one-on- one or in the group coaching it's all about first of all meeting you where you're at and seeing kind of an overhaul of like okay what is your what does your nutrition look like? What is your training look like? What is your overall movement throughout the day look like? What are your stress levels? What are you how much are you sleeping? How are you feeling? What are your hunger levels like? All of these things, these biofeedback metrics, we call them, right? We're taking kind of an overview of that and looking at that. And then we're saying, okay, here's where things are at. You know, tracking things. I'm a big data nerd. I think, you know, the same what gets measured gets managed is very, very true, especially when it comes to these types of things. If you're just kind of, you know. Going about it, and you're not taking notes of anything. You don't have any t- way of tracking the data. It's going to be really, really hard to see. Again, first of all, where you're at, but then also when you when you do start to implement different things, what's actually working? If you have no data, if you have no strategy or structure behind that, it's it's going to be super frustrating, and you're going to feel like you're spinning your wheels. Honestly, um, so I think the biggest thing is you know making sure that we have the objective data because that's where it comes back to the psychological side of things. If people can start to see objectively like on paper so to speak, the numbers changing and the things changing from like a data standpoint, even if they're not it's not caught up subjectively, they they're still in that psychological like hardship, right? Once you start to see things actually change from a data perspective, it it's like you can't that doesn't lie, right? The data doesn't lie. Uh, as long as you know how to interpret it correctly. Right. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing that I work with, with my clients is teaching them how to gather this data from a, of a standpoint that, you know, it can fit into their lifestyle. It's not like, Oh, you have to, you know, overhaul everything and track every little thing like throughout your whole day for the rest of your life. Like I'm not saying that. Um, but there are systems and structures in place that can help you to see the things that are objective versus, you know, trying to implement you know, trying to implement changes from a standpoint where it's just, you know, how you're feeling or subjectively, because there's so many things that can skew that. Right. So I think that's the biggest thing that I use is the objective data and the objective metrics, because it takes out all of the noise and you literally just see, okay, this is what's happening. And, you know, if we're starting to implement carbohydrates, for example, if they're coming off of keto and we're, a month or two in and they start to see that scale trend down. They start to see those body tape measurements trend down. They start to see, um, their sleep get a little bit better uh, maybe their cravings are actually coming a little bit under control as they're implementing more whole food carbs um, those are the things that that we can see and and that's what really kind of has that buy-in
0: yeah it's great to have that kind of external view of things because it separates the person from the data you're you're worried about mm-hmm. the data it's not your bad it's the data says this we can change this and this it's totally exactly. objective like you said yeah i absolutely love that we've already talked about kind of men and women and goals and I'd like to kind of talk both nutrition and a little bit on the exercise side. I I, I know you're probably the same way. Like, like 90% of the dudes that come to me, what are your goals? My goals are to lose fat and gain muscle. Okay, cool. Women, what are your goals? 90%. I want to get toned your favorite word. (laughs) (laughs) You've already used it. Um, can you explain why we might not be giving those two people that what seems like vastly different goals? We're not going to give them vastly different programs.
1: Yeah. So I think and you're talking about from programs from an exercise standpoint? Yeah, community exercise standpoint. Okay. So I think that is something that um, for males versus females there's when it comes to training, um there really aren't that many differences, uh, especially if we're just talking about like okay, if my goal is to, you know, put on muscle or get toned or just look look good. <laughs> if I want to change my body composition, right? Um, to a point where it's maybe losing a little bit of body fat and, you know, putting a little bit of muscle, which will create that toned look right. Toned is a a word that is used to describe someone who is lean, but has a good amount of muscle mass. Right. And so if we don't have that muscle mass underneath the body fat, and we try to just lose the body fat without paying attention to the muscle, then you're not going to look toned. You're just going to look skinny, um, or. Just not going to look how you, you want to look specifically for a woman. Um, so in terms of like males versus females and the differences really, when it comes to programming and training specifically for the goal of putting muscle on to either look more jacked from a dude's standpoint, or look more toned from a female standpoint, those differences really come down to the specific body parts that you're looking to actually enhance a little bit. So typically for females, we want to have nice butts and nice arms and shoulders. Um, and then males are more typically, and this is super generalized, right? Um, chest, but males biceps, more, chest maybe, and biceps. Yeah. Chest and biceps. Right. So, and maybe like quads, maybe at least for some females that I work, that I tend to work with, they care more about their, their backside than their front side. Um, but that's not always the case. I, I like, I like my quads. Um, so, so yeah, it's really just from that standpoint. Okay. If we're focusing, if we want to build up our shoulders a little bit more, we want to build up our glutes a little bit more. Okay. We're just going to add a little bit more of that into our program. And maybe we take out a little bit of chest and we kind of program that way. And then that's vice versa for males. So that's kind of the biggest thing in terms of the, the differences. Um, there are some other kind of nuances and things like that between males and females in terms of hormones and things like that. But from what I've seen over my years of coaching, I've tried to implement different things for actually changing programs for females versus males. I've worked with, I work with mainly females, but I've worked with males in the past as well. And, um, like research that I've done in terms of, Oh, you should be training this way because you know, you're at this point in your cycle. Um, typically that like that there's research there. There's, there's some things there that could be, um, accurate, but when we're trying to implement that from a practical standpoint with individual clients, everybody is so different. Um, and I've seen, and, and this just comes from kind of being in the trenches and working with a bunch of different women. Um, some women, I can say, like there's some women who respond like with what the research will say, and then there's some women who respond completely opposite, right? And so that all comes back to realizing that everybody's their own individual. And so um, what I found is that you know, there are some alterations that you can make depending on the person. And, and maybe you pull back a little bit during the months of during the time that you're not feeling your best, right? Just kind of you're, you're auto-regulating your training to that degree. Um, and I think that's the best you can do and the best you should be doing and paying attention to and not getting so caught up on all like the tiny nuances and, and trying to structure your training around that. Because you can do that. And that's what we like. We talk about this a lot in my muscle science for women program, which we were talking about a little bit off air, um, in that program, it's literally muscle science for women. We go into training and specifics within building muscle and getting tone for women specifically. And we talk a lot about these things. Um, and there are different nuances. There are different things that you, you can absolutely pay attention to, but it's finding what's like what you should be paying attention to for you, not for somebody else. Um, cause everybody is so different. So, so yeah, I would say that, you know, the biggest thing is just what body parts you're looking to, you know, enhance is the main differences. And then, um, from an individual standpoint, uh, you know, looking at those factors as well.
0: Yeah. Things to tweak, definitely things to dial in things that are nuanced, but the focus has to be muscle, 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 muscle. That's what you want. (laughs) Regardless, most people, men, women, whatever, like when you're telling us your goals, pretty much you want to really focus on muscle and getting really strong that can just accomplish so many things. I love using, um, a body fat scale and it's great for body fat, but I'm almost, you know, more interested in what the skeletal muscle mass number is because I know that if I can make that go up, if I can make that change, the body fat number will take care of itself, but the focus has to be on muscle.
1: Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think that's something that, especially with women tend to, to just get, you know, nervous that if they put on muscle, they'll look bulky and bigger. Yep. <laughs> right. That's kind of the, the, um, I think it's, it's gotten better over the, the yeah, last I year, think so too. but it, it, yeah, but it's something that is a fear. Right. And that's something that, I mean, I feared it at, at a point. And then I realized that wait, you know, that bulkiness, uh, is like, if you see, you know, a female CrossFit athlete or a female bodybuilder, right. That like muscle that you see, or some of that bulkiness, like that comes from years and years of training, like consistently sometimes having some enhancements within that training. Um, but for a normal, an average Joe, I would consider myself an average Joe, like you're not putting on muscle is only going to make you look leaner. Right. So this is a, just a quick kind of thing to think about, but if you are say you're a 150 pound female, if you ha- are 150 pounds, and maybe you have 100 uh, 100 pounds of lean body mass, um, and then that that female compared to a um, 150 pound female who has maybe 120 pounds of lean body mass, right? Like 10 pounds heavier, or maybe someone who's 100 yeah, hundred, same, same weight, but different, uh, percentages of, of their muscle mass that 150 pound female with the higher lean body mass percentage is going to have a lower body fat percentage, right? That's just the math makes sense there, but they're also going to look leaner at a higher body body fat percentage too. Right. And so that's where we have to take into account. The scale is not always the end all be all. Um, and also, you know, a lot of the the bulkiness is coming from the fat that's surrounding the muscle. So when you lose the body fat and you kind of unveil the muscle, that's where that lean tone look actually comes from.
0: Yeah, that's right. This is where I have to really explain to people that what what we mean when we talk about intensity. If I tell most people your workouts are going to be very intense, they'll think P90X, they'll think CrossFit, they'll think Orange Theory, they'll think all these things where the jumping around, bouncing around, hour long workouts, sweating everywhere. and, And that's what that's what people think, high intensity, um, you know, interval training, but, but there is a certain intensity with lifting. That's, that's different than that. And you really have to be clear with people that, yeah, you might have an intense lifting session. You might not even like breathe through your mouth or break a sweat. Do you find that you have to kind of tell people, show people the difference in intensity that way?
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's, I think there's different ways to look at intensity. Um, and this like there's two different camps here that I'm in kind of in the sense of I have some females and especially like within the people that I work with, I have some who are, you know, that personality where it's like, I need to just go, 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 go. I need to, you know, be sweating and I need to do high intensity stuff, um, and just work myself to the ground and never recover. Right. So there's that camp. I was there for a while. Um, so with those people, we have to say, okay, you know, your body needs to recover in order to build muscle, in order to look toned, you have, you have to also recover. You can't just continue to stress yourself training, you know, six days a week. Like that's, it's unnecessary if your main goal is to change your body composition. So with those people, it's like, all right, we need to tone down the intensity from that perspective. Right. And then there's some other, like uh, the other side of things is like some other women, you know, and I've been in this camp too, where we're actually not giving enough intensity when it comes to the lifting. Um, and we're like, right when it gets hard, we stop, right. Or right when it's, we start to feel like, Oh, I can't lift the weight. Like I'm just going to stop. And so that side of things, it's like, no lifting weights should feel uncomfortable. Like there should be effort and work that you put into that. Um, it shouldn't feel uncomfortable from a standpoint where it's like injury or joint wise. Right. But in order to build muscle, you have to tear it down first. Like you have to break your muscle fibers down. You have to get close enough to failure to stimulate new muscle growth. And so for never getting close to failure, for never getting, you know, into what we call effective reps, right. Which are the two to four reps before you fail. Those are the, where you're going to get the most effective stimulus from that muscle growth. If you're never getting to that, you're not lifting heavy enough to get there. Um, you're, you're not going to see the quote unquote gains that you want. So there's just, it's really just finding a balance, right? It's, it's all, it's always about finding balance, but with that, you have to realize like, okay, am I the person who's actually over and under-recovering or am I the person who is just not hitting it hard enough. Who's not putting in enough effort to actually see the growth that I want or that the changes that I want.
0: Yeah. I love the idea of balance when it comes to those things. And yeah, you can, you can kind of tailor those things and use them in the right amounts to get the desired effect where, where I see people go wrong is it's like, they want to build a house. And so they start by building the second level. And it's like, Mm -hmm. that will be a lot of effort. That's going to you know, take a lot of work and it's not going to get you to your goal. You still have to follow the right rules to get to the goal. And if you want to get strong and, you know, you want to increase muscle mass, it's, it's exactly what you said. You need to follow those rules. And just because you're working really hard doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get the results you want. You're just going to be a big sweaty mess. And, and again, you might have some really detrimental effects to your metabolism and you're not following the right rules to get you the right um, result that you mm-hmm. want.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: I agree. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, you are very busy. Um, I knew that you had <laughs> one podcast. I didn't know that you had a second podcast, and I absolutely did not know that you were starting a third podcast. Um, can you tell us? Um yeah. that, that's crazy, first of all. Like <laughs> I do too as well, and it's a lot of work, but three would be a tremendous amount. Can you tell us a little bit about some of those projects you have?
1: Yeah, sure. So Betflex and Chill is kind of my main podcast. Um, it's been around since the pandemic, which you talked about. Um, so that's the one where I have guests on, I do solo episodes. Um, and then I have another podcast called mini flex, which is, uh, comes out four times a week. Um, and it is a mini version really of MetFlex, where it's kind of taking common questions, answering questions, um, going into specific topics and they're like between five and 20 minute episode length. So, you know, it's kind of supposed to be just, you know, if you go through and look at the topic, something that you're interested in, you can uh, listen to it and kind of get an answer within that five to 15 minute period really. Um, and then the third podcast, which I'm starting with my business partner, Ashley Van Halen is, um, going to be called the muscle science for women podcast, which is, uh, kind of based around our program, muscle science for women. Um, so that will be coming out probably in the next month or two. Um, we haven't really announced it yet. So I guess I'm announcing it on here. (laughs) Um, yeah, so, so I'm excited about that. Um, and yeah, three podcasts is a lot, but we have, you know, I'm obviously doing that one with her. So we have kind of two people, um, two people, you know, in the, in the, in the trenches working through that. So,
0: yeah, that's great with, and with your other program, um, specifically for women, why did you feel like that needed to be done? What was the gap you wanted to fill there?
1: I, I actually did have a lot of programs. I still do have programs that are kind of self-paced programs, um, both nutrition, more keto related stuff for people who are, are want to get into that. Then I also have uh, more self, um, like, uh, do-it-yourself programs from exercise standpoint too, um, but the main programs that you know right now I have are Muscle Science for Women, which is really it's actually not live right now, but you can get on the waiting list for the next launch probably, which will be in the fall of this year. Um, that is really focused on women who want to learn everything about building muscle, getting toned, uh, learn the science behind it psychological psychology behind it, but also have a program to follow as well. Um, and then my group coaching, which is called the flex fam, that is basically everything, right? So that is nutrition training. I, I write the training program for the, the, the members. Um, I'm in there interacting. We have a, an app it's called the flex fam app. Um, so where I'm in there all the time. Um, we have weekly zoom calls, uh, just everything, right. Challenges, um, nutrition, personal development, um, all the things, everything that encompasses, you know, living a healthy lifestyle. I I basically, my tagline is like creating the most confident, badass version of yourself through nutrition, training, and personal development. Um, so that's what that is. And that is actually, like I mentioned, it's coming to a close for the launch, um, at the end, the beginning of July, it'll be the last intake and then not until next year. So if anybody's interested in that, it's, uh, all on my website, matflexlife.com.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. It's so cool that you're able to help so many people with so many different formats. Um, It it (laughs) really, if you wanna be in this space and you want to help people to be able to do that, you have to do a tremendous amount of work. I mean, podcasting is a lot of work. The social media, it's a lot of work. It's putting together programs. You have no idea for the listener, like what it is to write a program. It's, it's complicated. There's a lot of variables that we're trying to consider and how we're going to make progressions and, and make this continue to work for you. There's a lot of work that goes into it. And so it's so cool that you've been able to synthesize all of that and provide that in so many different ways for so many um, different people. What is, what is one thing that you're the, the most proud of?
1: Oh, wow, that's an intense question. <laughs> um, oh boy. Honestly, I would say that I'm the most proud right now of the Flexfam., um, and maybe that's just because it is um it's it's been around since last year. It actually officially started in uh, early february of of this past year. Um, but it's definitely over the years of creating programs and working with one on one clients it's my way to basically meld everything into kind of like a one-stop shop that has been just amazing. (laughs) Um, and I really enjoy it because I actually get to program, like in terms of a training perspective, I get to program for them, uh, for the members every single month. And I basically test the program myself first, and then I release it to the group. Um, and there's obviously so many other components with nutrition and, and just like personal development side of things like working on that side, which I think is a huge piece of the puzzle that a lot of people miss is the psychological side of it. Like actually setting yourself up for some success from a psychological standpoint and like what that looks like, because, you know, if your goal is to change your body composition, if your goal is to lose body fat or build muscle, that's one thing. Right. But like, that none of that is going to happen or be able to be sustained unless you can take care of and understand the psychological component that goes into all of these different things. Um, and that's something that I missed out on for years. And so I'm just really excited to help people through that and realize that they can become the most confident, badass version of themselves, through that. So, yeah,
0: that's a great answer. I'm glad you're proud of that. You should be. That's wonderful. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. I know you already mentioned your website, but where can people go to find you and connect with you and your work?
1: Absolutely. So with, um, uh, social media, I'm on all social platforms, uh, most active on Instagram and TikTok um, at rachelgregory.cns. Um, and then yeah, on my website, metflexlife.com. If you want to, uh, go, you can go on that and find all of my programs. Uh, the flex fam is theflexfam.com and yeah. That's (laughs) Very much it that's <laughs>
0: awesome we will link to all of that in the show notes rachel Gregory thank you so very much for all of your work this this is a challenging place to be when you find something <laughs> that helps you and it helps you so much and changes your life you really want to grab onto that one thing but but that's not always what might work for you. And so it's really difficult psychologically to get through that and and to, to keep finding other things that can work. And so to share that message, I think is so important. And I think people really need to understand that. I think um, you do such a good job sharing that message. So thank you so very much for all you do. And thank you for coming on our show today. We really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a blast.
0: Absolutely, it was an honor. And this has been another episode of Balanced Body Radio. As always, thank you so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio. It's really inspiring and amazing to see some of the reviews that we have been getting and also to receive so many messages and emails about how these episodes have improved our listeners' lives. And so thank you so very much. We are so happy to bring these episodes to you and provide them for free. And we really hope that they help you in your life. Uh, We have just passed two major milestones, which is absolutely mind-blowing to me. And basically we did both of these in pretty much the exact same day. We have just passed 100,000 downloads worldwide of Boundless Body Radio, and we have just launched our 250th episode, which is absolutely amazing. Like I said, I never imagined we could reach that many people. We always wanna keep you updated on things that we're doing on our website. So if you go to myboundlessbody.com, you can always see what we're up to. This month, we have a link that you can go and schedule a functional movement screen, which we do virtually over Zoom. A functional movement screen is a series of seven different movements and three different clearing tests, which is designed to find weak links in the body, such as muscle imbalances and joint stability issues. It's a really great tool for discovering inefficient movement. And even if you're not experiencing pain in certain areas your body it's something that can prevent injury later on some muscles need to be stretched some need to be strengthened and we can help you create a plan around that so that you can stay healthy and continue to move well for the rest of your life So again, you can go and schedule that at myboundlessbody.com. You will also see the other services that we offer. You can always schedule a complimentary 30-minute consultation with us to really chat about anything that you like. And remember, if you are enjoying Boundless Body Radio, please take a minute, give us a rating or review on Apple. It really helps get this passion project out to other people. And thank you again for tuning into Boundless Body Radio.